Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon English study group and we're studying volume 9 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. Volume 9 is titled The Six Sense Bases. This is where you're learning about central desire and the mind longing and yearning through the sense bases. I've been going chapter by chapter in our class, and as we complete each book, we move into the next book. So in a matter of about two weeks, we're going to be completing this particular book and moving into the next book, which is volume nine. So welcome to our class. I'm really pleased that you're here. The way that we do our class is I share the individual chapters of the book and invite anybody who's in Zoom to be able to read the chapters. And if there's people who would like to read the chapters, you can read, and then I will share some teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have whether you're in Facebook YouTube or zoom you can ask questions by putting that into the comment section and if you're in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly so today we're studying chapters 31 through 40 and as I mentioned this is in volume 9 which is part of the words of the Buddha book series and you can download this book series for free by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you'll see a link for free books and you'll be able to get access to the original words of the Buddha so that you can study them and learn them. That way you can then start reflecting on them to independently verify them. And then you can practice them and train the mind to move to this enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So if there's anyone in Zoom who would like to read, just let me know and all you need to do is raise your hand electronically and I'll be able to see that and then you can read the chapters. And if there's nobody who's interested in reading, then I'll just go ahead and start reading. But at any time, if you guys would like to read, just let me know. So this first chapter is titled, Only with Sense Control that one can fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness. Monks, Save one and not give up six things. He cannot become one who resides in reflecting on the body as body. What six? Excitement in activity. Excitement in gossip. Excitement in sleep. Excitement in company. Being without a guard on the sense doors and immoderate in eating. Surely, monks, save one and not give up these six, he cannot become one who resides in reflecting on the body as body, but one surely can if one gives up these six. 
Okay, so first let me help you understand what the four foundations of mindfulness are, and then we'll go into talking about these six things that the Buddha is basically sharing with you that without having eliminated these things, you can't develop the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness are crucial in order to get to enlightenment. It's part of the core central teachings of the Buddha on the Eightfold Path. The Buddha teaches eight individual steps, and it's perfecting each of these individual steps in your life practice that the mind then moves to the enlightened mental state. You need to dial these in closer and closer, training the mind to eradicate all the 10 fetters, and it's the Eightfold Path that is going to help you to be able to accomplish that. And one of the steps on the Eightfold Path is called Right Mindfulness. When you're first learning about mindfulness as part of your foundational teachings to develop your life practice on the path to enlightenment, I encourage students to think about right mindfulness as awareness of mind, where you're attempting to develop and cultivate this awareness of the mind, and you're doing this through meditation. The breathing mindfulness meditation is helping you to develop awareness of the mind, and then you would like to practice that throughout your day, where you can have awareness of the mind. What are the wholesome things that are in the mind? What are the unwholesome things that are in the mind? Because you're going to need to support and encourage the wholesome and eliminate the unwholesome. You're going to need to observe when there's anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure coming into the mind. You're going to need to be able to notice that and observe it long before it actually becomes a feeling in the mind. And that's what the Buddha is referring to here when he says reflecting on body as body. Because the four foundations of mindfulness are going to take you beyond just understanding that mindfulness is awareness of mind and helping you to understand the four individual things that you're going to need to develop awareness of. The first foundation of mindfulness is called bodily sensations. You're going to need to be aware of the bodily sensations that are occurring before the mind experiences a feeling. That's the second foundation, is the feelings. And then the third foundation is the condition of the mind. And then the fourth foundation is mental objects. So the four foundations of mindfulness are bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, in mental objects. And you're going to need to develop awareness of all four of these things in order to transform the mind and train it to eliminate these discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others. Because what the mind is doing is with craving, desire, attachment in the unenlightened state, the mind is longing and yearning for things to be permanent. It's craving, it's desiring, it's wanting, it's expecting, it's grasping, it's holding on. So as this mind is longing and yearning through the six sense bases, if there's a craving in the mind and it gets the objects of its affection, then it's going to have those conditioned pleasant feelings start to arise. The happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. And then if you don't get what the mind craves and longs for, then you're going to experience those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, and others. And then there's the neither painful nor pleasant feelings too, like shyness or things like that. So as the mind is getting ready to experience a conditioned feeling, 
there's a bodily sensation that the mind is triggering due to its craving, that there's a bodily sensation in the body that is going to be observable if you train your mind to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. You'll notice with something like anger, for example, you might have tingling in the body coming up from the feet up through the chest. You might notice a tightening of the chest or some pain around the heart. You might notice a tightening in the throat or some heat in the face or maybe some pressure in the skull. This is associated with the anger or frustration. But even those pleasant feelings, those conditioned pleasant feelings have certain bodily sensations as well. You might feel tingling across your shoulders or up the back of your neck or over your skull. This bodily sensations associated with conditioned feelings are like an early warning system, helping you to understand, hey, you're about to get a conditioned feeling. So you can cut off and let go of this conditioned feeling that is starting to arise as a bodily sensation. And you can save the mind a whole lot of trouble of having to experience the conditioned feeling. Essentially, the mind in the unenlightened state is wired to experience conditioned feelings. And if you continue to allow that to occur, then the mind is just going to continue to be wired and is going to be continued to fire where you're going to experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. So you're trying to cut that off as a bodily sensation before it ever becomes a conditioned feeling in the mind. So the bodily sensations are a early warning system to help you prevent these conditioned feelings from coming into the mind. It's kind of like if you were taking a boat from the USA to the UK and you're out in the middle of the ocean, you would like to prevent the water from ever coming into the boat because once it comes into the boat, you have a real problem to deal with. So if you can prevent the conditioned feeling from coming into the mind, you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble. The anger and frustration or guilt or shame or the loneliness or boredom never arises in the mind. You cut it off as a bodily sensation. And if you do that enough over a long-term consistent period of time, you will eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments that are in the mind, along with breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. You'll eliminate these cravings, desires, attachments, and you won't experience any arising of any conditioned feelings because you've eliminated the conditions that are causing it. So being aware of the bodily sensations associated with the arising of discontentedness is utterly important to be able to gain control and discipline of the mind. But if you miss it as a bodily sensation, it will become a feeling in the mind, which will happen as you're transforming your mind. You're not going to always be able to catch it as a bodily sensation early on in your practice. So if it becomes a feeling, you can cut it off and let it go there too. Because if you don't cut it off as a conditioned feeling, then it's going to affect the condition of the mind. So for a few hours or a few days or maybe a week or so, the mind is going to be agitated or annoyed or frustrated. And you're not interested in this because as you allow that to occur, it's going to feed this mental object of ill will in this example of anger. So you're trying to get a handle of understanding and having awareness of the bodily sensations, the feelings that are occurring in the mind, the condition of the mind, and then the mental objects, which are deeply rooted containers in the mind. So when you gain this ability to be aware of the bodily sensations, the Buddha shares, and I can confirm that 
when you start to be aware of the bodily sensations and you can cut off and let go of any discontentedness there, you're really close to enlightenment. It's not going to be in the next day or the next week, but within the next couple of years, you're going to be able to get to enlightenment because you've developed the ability to cut off and let go of any discontentedness as a bodily sensation before it has even become a feeling in the mind. And now you're getting ahead of the curve on transforming your mind. So developing the awareness of these bodily sensations is utterly important. And that's why here the Buddha is sharing with you these six things that you need to eliminate in order to be able to then develop the ability to observe and notice these bodily sensations, this early warning system, so that you can get a handle and discipline and control of the mind. So these six things that the Buddha is describing is excitement and activity. This is a conditioned pleasant feeling based on some activity. Say you're going to the mall or you're going to the movies or you're going out to dinner or you're going to play football with your friends or you're going to do some activity anywhere or people are coming over to spend time with you to do an activity. If you get conditioned pleasant feelings when this is occurring, then the mind is still wired and still getting conditioned feelings based on this particular activity. So you would like to learn how to enjoy the activity and have fun at the activity, but not cling to it and not hold on to it. So that then when the activity is over, you'll feel bored and you'll feel lonely. So if you allow the mind to get a conditioned, pleasant feeling like excitement, when there's some kind of activity going on, then it's only a matter of time before your mind ends up in this boredom or loneliness or sadness or frustration when the activity is over. And then the same thing with excitement and gossip. This is like slander or damaging someone's reputation. If you find excitement in this, the Buddha is saying you're not going to be able to develop the ability to observe these bodily sensations or the excitement in sleep where you get so excited about sleep. Because if you get so excited about sleeping and you really want eight hours of sleep, well, when you get six hours of sleep, you're going to be grumpy and irritable, right? So you're not interested in your mind doing that, realizing that sleep is impermanent. Sometimes you're going to get eight hours. Sometimes you're going to get six. Sometimes you might get 10. Sometimes you might get four. Your sleeping schedule is going to bounce around due to impermanence. But if you're craving, desiring, attached to having a certain amount of sleep, then you'll have these conditioned, pleasant feelings of excitement when you get a certain amount of sleep. And when you don't get that amount of sleep, you'll experience the painful feelings. Excitement in company would be those conditioned pleasant feelings and people coming to see you or you coming to see them, spending time with your friends or family. So again, you would like to learn how to enjoy this without having a conditioned pleasant feeling. So for example, if you're friends or your family call you up and say, hey, I'm going to come visit you this weekend. I would like to come to your house and see your new house or your new apartment. And then you're like, all right, yes, I'm so excited. Can't wait to see you. But then if they call you that same day and say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't come. Something else has come up. Now you're going to feel sad and you're going to feel lonely and bored and frustrated because you're peacefulness, your contentedness is attached to whether these people come to see you or not. Your mind isn't liberated. It's defiled. It's polluted with this craving, desire, attachment, wanting, longing, yearning. And you can only be happy if these things occur. So you would like to get to the point where 
you can look forward to your friends coming or your family coming. And when they come, you can thoroughly enjoy that. But then if they called right before coming and they can't make it, you're okay with that too. You'll do something else that it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of your fun. You can still have fun. You can still enjoy your day even if people don't come. Or if they do come and you get really, really excited when your family or friends come, then when they leave, you're going to really miss them. You're going to feel bored and lonely when they're gone. So you're interested in eliminating that from the mind by training the mind to not have these conditioned pleasant feelings just because somebody's coming to see you. So you're going to need to cut that off and let it go, allowing the mind to reside peaceful and joyful. When you spend time with people, thoroughly enjoy that. It's very fulfilling and satisfying to spend time with people. But then when it's over, it's over and you move on to the next thing, not clinging, craving and yearning and longing for this thing to continue. Then the fifth one, the Buddha saying, being without a guard on the sense doors. This is the reason why this is in this book, because we've been learning about central desire and how the mind longs and yearns through the sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself. These are the six sense bases, and the mind is longing and yearning through these for permanently agreeable contact. That's what the unenlightened mind does. And then when it gets the objects of its affection, it gets those conditioned pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get what it wants, it gets those conditioned painful feelings. So it gets a disagreeable contact. It's going to experience the sadness or anger or frustration. So you need to develop this guard. The guard that the Buddha is talking about is mindfulness or awareness of the mind. You need to have this general awareness of the six sense bases. And one of the examples I can provide you, and I can share as many as you like, is at one time when I was looking to get rid of coffee and no longer drink coffee due to the caffeine, and I knew this was problematic to the mind because the mind was becoming overactive and excited and having difficulty sleeping and things like this, I decided I was going to get rid of coffee. And I needed to guard the mind because when I walked past a coffee shop, I could smell the aroma coming out of the coffee shop. And that odor was going into the nose and now it was exciting the craving in the mind and the mind was pulling towards the coffee shop wanting to go into the coffee shop in order to get a coffee so i had to guard the mind that i had to protect it with this mindfulness that as i walked past the coffee shop i understood that this aroma was impermanent and going to fulfill this craving is not going to solve any problems because as I drink that coffee, I'm going to get a massive headache. I'm going to probably be laying in bed for several days. I'm going to regret having drank that coffee. So I need to guard the mind to not allow that craving to go forward and act upon that craving. So you're going to need to guard all the doorways, whether it's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind itself for all these different cravings that the mind's going to have through these sense bases. You can have this mindfulness or awareness of mind to guard the doorways and guard the mind. And then the sixth one here is eating in moderation. Oftentimes in the unenlightened state, when you're experiencing painful feelings, you might turn to some craving, desire, attachment that you have in order to get pleasant feelings. And the unenlightened mind thinks that this is the way to get out of its painful feelings is to 
chase something that it has a craving for. And then when you get the objects of your affection, you get pleasant feelings. And that's the way that the unenlightened mind thinks is the best way to get away from the painful feelings. But this just keeps the cycle going over and over, around and around and around and again. You need to be able to observe that when the mind is experiencing painful feelings, this is because of its craving desire attachments. You need to eliminate the cravings desires attachments through the training of the mind. That's what's going to eliminate your painful feelings. You're not going to eliminate your painful feelings by having another craving to go chase after some new object, get those pleasant feelings, because then when that condition changes, your mind's going to end up in the painful feelings again. It's just a cycle that keeps going around and around and around. So one of the things that the mind can crave when it's experiencing painful feelings is food. And this is one of the ways that an unenlightened mind might choose to try to move away from those painful feelings and get back to something that is somewhat comfortable, which is these conditioned pleasant feelings. But what you would like to get to is unconditioned joy, unconditioned mental qualities of peace and joy and happiness and things like this. Those unconditioned mental states is what you're looking to get to. And by eliminating your craving, desire, attachments, that's what will allow you to do it. So if you keep allowing the mind to do what we might call emotional eating, where when you're experiencing painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, you maybe turn to chocolate cake or ice cream or some other favorite food that you have this is going to cause the mind to stay stuck in this cycle. And sometimes what an unenlightened being might do is kind of gorge when they're eating food. They just eat a significant amount of food. So what you would like to do is start learning how to eat in moderation, smaller portions. Some countries, depending on where you live, you go out to eat, there's these enormous portions and you take in all this food and then the body needs to do all this work in order to digest the food. And now the mind can't be as attentive to what's going on in the mind. When these unwholesome thoughts are coming up, you can't be having as strong of a guard to guard the mind because the mind is busy and the body is busy digesting this food. So by eating in moderation, smaller portions, you'll be able to sustain the health of the body, but then protect the mind and ensure that you're not emotionally eating. So these are the six things that the Buddha is sharing to eliminate in order to help you get closer to developing the awareness of the bodily sensations, that first foundation of mindfulness. But you're also going to need breathing mindfulness meditation in order to cultivate that as well. But these are six things that he's sharing that you need to eliminate. Let me know what questions you guys have here. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'm going to do is move on to the next chapter. And, and since a few more of you guys have logged in, I'll just remind you that you're welcome to read any of these as we go. So this is chapter 32. It's titled, Taints to be Abandoned by Restraining. What taints, monks? Oh, Donnie's raising his hand. He must be interested to read. Go ahead, Donnie. Uh, Tains to be abandoned by restraining. What taints, monk, should be abandoned by restraining? Here, a monk, reflecting wisely, recites with the eye-sense-based restraint, the ear-sense-based restraint, the nose-sense-based restraint, the tongue-sense-based restraint, the body-sense-based restraint, the mind-sense-based restraint, while taints 
frustration and unrest or anxiety might arise in one who resides with the I sense base unrestrained, the ear sense base unrestrained, the nose sense base unrestrained, the tongue sense base unrestrained, the body sense base unrestrained, the mind sense base unrestrained. There are no things, frustrations, or unrest or anxiety in one who resides with the sense basis restraint. These are things that should be abandoned by restraining. All right. Thank you, Dani. So the taints that the Buddha is referring to here, these are pollutions of mind or defilements. These are the 10 fetters. And you need to eliminate all 10 fetters in order to train the mind to get to the enlightened mental state. So here he's describing that there are certain taints or certain defilements or certain pollutions of mind that need to be abandoned and they're abandoned by restraining the mind. And what you're doing is you'll see in the next chapter is you're restraining the mind and then you're eliminating or abandoning or removing the actual fetter or the taint or the pollution from the mind. Here he's talking about the fetter of central desire. This is the fourth fetter. What you do in order to eliminate central desire is you first start with developing your breathing mindfulness meditation and your generosity. You need to practice both of these. By practicing breathing mindfulness meditation two or three times a day, building up to 30 minutes or more over the course of developing your practice, you can develop all the qualities that you need to be able to restrain the mind and pull it back. And the same thing with generosity. When you're practicing generosity where you're giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any given situation without any expectation of anything in return, you're training the mind to let go. You can restrain the mind. You can pull it back because a mind with central desire tends to be somewhat selfish. It holds on to things very tightly, being unwilling to give and share. So the breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are there to help you to be able to develop the qualities you need to be able to restrain the mind. Then with your mindfulness that you've developed in meditation as part of the Eightfold Path, when you're practicing your awareness of mind and you see the mind longing and yearning in any given situation where it's longing through these sense spaces, you then apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. You restrain the mind, you pull it back and you distance the mind from the object that it's chasing. Remember the craving desire attachment isn't the object itself. It's inside the mind. It's the longing and the yearning. So keeping with this example of the coffee that I gave earlier. So as I was walking down the street and I smelled the aroma of the coffee, I needed to guard the mind. And in that situation, I just kept walking in some situations, right? So as this aroma was coming into the nose, the mind was guarded with mindfulness. But as the mind was longing and yearning towards the coffee shop, I needed to pull it back. I needed to restrain it. I also needed to distance myself from the object. So in some situations, when I was first getting started, I had to kind of walk to the other side of the street and try to completely avoid the odor altogether because my mind wasn't strong enough to resist the craving that was still inside the mind. So in some cases, I had to walk all the way to the other side of the street. But then over time, as the mind became stronger and more stable, I was able to walk down the street. The aroma was coming out of the coffee shop and I could just keep walking. And now at the point where for many years, I've been able to even go into coffee shops and sit down and meet with students because sometimes they 
have questions they would like to go have some coffee so i go with them to go have coffee and i just order a water or a smoothie or something like this so you're going to need to restrain the mind you're going to need to pull it back from the various cravings desires attachments that it has if you keep allowing it to long and yearn and chase after these things then it's just going to continue to persist and if you get what you want you're going to get those pleasant feelings if you don't get what you want you get the painful feelings and the cycle just keeps going on and on and on and on so the buddha is saying while taints so meaning while there's taints in the mind there's going to be frustration unrest or anxiety this will arise based on having these sense bases that are unrestrained because the restraint hasn't been established in the mind the mind isn't stable enough it's not steady enough so if your sense bases are unrestrained that means you're going to still experience frustration and anxiety and other discontent feelings because in some cases you're going to get what you want in some cases you're not going to get what you want so you'll need to be able to develop this restraint the ability to pull the mind back because when you eliminate the taints which is what the buddha is describing here with no pollutions of mind then there is no frustration there is no anxiety there is no discontent mind because you've eliminated the taints you've restrained the mind so now you can uproot these pollutions out of the mind and that's what the buddha is describing here as part of this particular discourse which connects with the next discourse that we're going to be reading here in a moment are there any questions on this one okay i'm not seeing any questions so let's move to the next one which this is chapter 33. okay so i'll just go ahead and read this one unless somebody volunteers it's titled taints to be abandoned by removing what taints monks should be abandoned by removing here a monk reflecting wisely does not tolerate an arisen thought of sense desire he abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and obliterates it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will, thought of cruelty, evil, unwholesome states. He abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and obliterates them. While taint, frustration, and unrest or anxiety might arise in one who does not remove these thoughts, there are no taints frustration and unrest anxiety in one who removes them these are called the taints that should be abandoned by removing so here the buddha is cluing into right intention as part of the eightfold path there's those three aspects of right intention or right thinking or right thought that you need to develop you need to develop the intention of renunciation the intention of non-ill will in the intention of harmlessness so here these are just the opposites so what the buddha is saying is if you have a thought of central desire that comes up or a thought of ill will or a thought of cruelty that comes up these are unwholesome states you need to abandon them you need to cut them off you need to eliminate them and remove them out of the mind this is where your mindfulness or your awareness of mind comes in that if you're aware of these thoughts that come up in the mind then you work to eliminate them by applying right effort so your meditation and your generosity is going to train the mind to be able to let it go to be able to observe it with mindfulness and then be able to let it go and then as you let these go you cut them off and let them go this is done through right effort so it's right mindfulness and right effort that you're using to be able to 
cultivate the mind here. And you need that right concentration, which is the breathing mindfulness meditation, right? So this is what's going to help you to develop the right intentions because you're going to need the right intention or right thinking or right thought. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, in the intention of harmlessness is what you're looking to cultivate. So these are just the opposites, central desire, ill will, and cruelty. So renunciation is the willingness to let go, to let go of unwholesome thoughts, to let go of false beliefs and false opinions and things like this, keeping an open mind to understand that if you're experiencing discontent feelings, there's still wisdom that your mind hasn't yet fully cultivated. So there's certain things you're going to need to let go of that are currently in the mind. And there's new information that you're going to need to bring in by cultivating wisdom. So by practicing the intention of renunciation, it allows the mind to be open to this new wisdom and eliminating certain things that are in the mind. And then if you have the intention of non-ill will, this is the same as saying goodwill or loving kindness, the genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then the intention of harmlessness, this is being incapable or disinterested of causing harm to any beings because any harm that you put out, it's going to come back to you. So by practicing for the elimination of central desire, ill will, and cruelty, you're working to arise right intention, which is the intention of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. And then the same thing, the Buddha is saying like, okay, once you remove these taints, then there is no frustration or anxiety. But if you have these pollutions in mind, you're going to then have frustration and anxiety because the mind's going to be longing and yearning through the sense spaces and it's having these unwholesome thoughts. So you're going to be experiencing these discontent feelings. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let me go ahead and move to the next chapter, which is chapter 34. This is a really short one. All right, Dinah, you'd like to read that one? Go for it. Monks, when for a monk, the things that should be abandoned by restraining have been abandoned by restraining. When the things that should be abandoned by removing have been abandoned by removing, then he is called a monk who recites restrained with all the restraint of all the things. He has severed craving, flung off the feathers, and with the complete elimination of conceit, he has made an end of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Donnie. This is a continuation of the last two chapters that we've been reading. It's from the same source. So here the Buddha is saying, okay, when you eliminate all the taints, when you eliminate all the fetters, all those pollutions, all those defilements, you're going to make an end to discontentedness. This is enlightenment. This is where the mind is now experiencing the enlightened mental state. And one of those fetters is conceit. This is the arrogance, the pride, the boastfulness, the judging others, measuring and comparing that you're above people or below people. You would like to eliminate that because as long as your mind is doing that, it's not yet enlightened. You're going to talk down to certain people. You're going to talk up to other people. You're going to feel uncalm maybe when you're around somebody that you admire so highly. Your 
mind's going to be shaken up. So you would like to view all beings equally. Even though other people might look down on you or look up to you, you would like to look at everybody as being equal and train your mind to think of yourself as being equal, that you're not above anyone, you're not below anyone, that you're not looking to judge people of who's doing wholesome and unwholesome things, but you just focus on your own decisions, not being worried about other people being wholesome or unwholesome, but instead focusing on your own practice. So by eliminating all the 10 fetters, which is what the entire path to enlightenment is guiding you to do, that's where you can make a complete end of discontentedness and the mind is actually enlightened. You'll need to eliminate the craving and eliminate all those 10 fetters. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. Questions on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to the next chapter then. Let's see, this is chapter 35. Okay, I'll go ahead and read this one. It's titled, Dispelling the Contact. Monks, consciousness comes to be based on two things. And how, monks, does consciousness come to be based on two things? Consciousness is based on the I in forms. There arises I consciousness. The I is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Forms are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, these two things are moving, fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. I consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of I consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, I consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent. How could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called eye contact. Eye contact, too, is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of eye contact is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, eye contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Contacted, Monks, one feels. Contacted, one craves. Contacted, one perceives. Thus, these things, too, are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Similar discourses were recited in the case of ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. In dependence on the ear and sounds, there arises ear consciousness. In dependence on the nose and odors, there arises nose consciousness. In dependence on the tongue and flavors, there arises nose consciousness. In dependence on the body and physical objects, there arises body consciousness. In dependence on the mind and mental objects, there arises mind consciousness. The ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mental objects are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, two things are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mind consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. 
When monks, mind consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent. How could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called mind contact. Mind contact, too, is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind contact is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, mind contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent. How could it be permanent? Contacted monks, one feels. Contacted, one craves. Contacted, one perceives. Thus, these two things are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. It is in such a way, monks, that consciousness comes to be based on two things. Okay, so let me help you understand what the Buddha is sharing here and why he's actually sharing it. So first, he's helping you to understand these three individual things and then a fourth thing as well. So he's saying, first of all, that consciousness is based on two things. Essentially, the continuation of consciousness, continuing to be reborn over and over and over again. He's saying it's based on two things. It's really dependent origination, which is the ultimate truth. But here he's penetrating into a specific part of dependent origination and helping you to be able to see what allows consciousness to continue forward and continue to experience rebirth. He's saying consciousness is based on the I and forms. What he's saying is it's based on the internal sense base and the external sense base. So the internal sense base is the eye, ear, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. These are the six internal sense bases. And then there's the external sense bases that the eye sees a certain form. The ear hears a certain sound. The nose smells a certain odor. The tongue tastes a certain flavor. The body comes in contact with a certain physical object. And the mind comes in contact with a certain mental object. So it's these internal sense bases and external sense bases that consciousness is based on. So here, when the eye experiences a form and the mind becomes aware of it, that's called eye consciousness. So we now have three things. We have the internal sense base of the eye. We have the external sense base of the physical form. Then the third thing is when the mind becomes aware of it. This is called eye consciousness. And now what he ultimately gets to is he says, these three things are what we call contact, that you've now come in contact with a certain form. And the same thing is happening with the ear. So the ear hears a sound and then the mind becomes aware of it, and that's ear consciousness. And now those three things are called ear contact, right? And now there's the nose, there's the odor, there's the mind becoming aware of that odor, and now that's nose consciousness, and then those three things are called nose contact. So it goes through each of the sense bases in that way. And then the Buddha is explaining to you that these things are all impermanent, right? And you can independently verify that these things are indeed all impermanent, that the eye is impermanent, the form is impermanent, the awareness in the mind is impermanent, and ultimately what he says too is the contact is impermanent as well. 
He's helping you to understand that all these things are impermanent because what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's craving permanence. It wants things to be permanent. And he's awakening you to the wisdom to help you see that they aren't permanent. Because as long as you keep craving through these sense spaces, wanting them to be permanent, then when you get agreeable contact through any of these sense spaces, now you'll experience conditioned pleasant feelings. But then when you don't get your cravings fulfilled, you're going to experience conditioned painful feelings. So by understanding the impermanent nature of the I, the forms, the consciousness and awareness of it, and the contact, then you understand that there's nothing permanently pleasing here. There's nothing that's going to bring you permanent happiness through these sense spaces. So you got to let go of craving and longing and yearning for permanent happiness and permanent excitement through these sense spaces. You need to be willing to let go of the temporary conditioned happiness in order to get to the permanent joy or the permanent happiness, which is unconditioned happiness. So if you can train your mind to understand and deeply soak in that all these things are impermanent, so there's no reason to chase and long and yearn through all these sense spaces because it's all going to be displeasing in the end. Because as soon as you allow your mind to latch on to these things, you'll experience some temporary pleasure through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body or the mind, but then ultimately your mind's going to end up in painful feelings as a result. So you would like to get to the point where you can understand these things are impermanent and no longer allow the mind to long and yearn and chase through the sense bases. Any questions on this one? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So this is chapter 36 coming up. Would you like to read this one, Donnie? By way of right intention, monks, whatever a monk frequently thinks and reflects upon, that will become the disposition of his mind. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation or letting go to cultivate the thought of sensual desire and then his mind leans out to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thought of ill will, he has abandoned the thought of non-ill will, cultivate the thought of ill will, and then his mind leans to thoughts of ill will. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of cruelty, he has abandoned the thoughts of harmlessness to cultivate the thought of cruelty, and then his mind leans to thoughts of cruelty. Just as in the last month of the rainy season in the autumn, when the crops thicken, a cattle worker will guard his cows by constantly tipping and poking them on this side and there with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be beaten, imprisoned, fined or blamed if he lets them stray into the crops. So too, I saw in unwholesome states of danger, dishonor, and defilement, and in wholesome states, the benefit of renunciation or letting go, the aspect of cleansing. As I reside, resided thus, diligent, dedicated, and determined, a thought of renunciation or letting go arose in me. A thought of non-ill will arose in me. A thought of harmlessness arose in me. I understood thus. 
this thought of renunciation or letting go has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own harm or to others' harm or the harm of both. It is wisdom does not cause difficulties and leads to nibbana or enlightenment. If I think and reflect upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. But with excessive thinking and reflection, I may tire the body, and when the body is tired, the mind comes disturbed. And when the mind is disturbed, it is far from concentration. So I state the mind internally, quieted it, brought it to singleness, and concentrated it. Why is that? So that the mind should not be disturbed. Months. Whatever a mind frequently thinks and reflects upon, that will become the disposition of his mind. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of renunciation or letting go, he has abandoned the thought of sensual desire to cultivate the thought of renunciation or letting go. And then his mind leans to thoughts of renunciation or letting go. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of non-ill will, he has abandoned the thought of ill will to cultivate the thought of non-ill will. And then his mind leans to thoughts of non-ill will. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of harmlessness, he has abandoned the thought of cruelty to cultivate the thought of harmlessness. And then his mind leans to thoughts of harmlessness. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the village, a cattle worker will guard his cows while staying on the, at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was a need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So let me help you guys understand what the Buddha is sharing here, because he's giving a farming analogy, which he often does, because people during his lifetime were very familiar with farming. There were many, many farmers. And if you weren't a farmer, you definitely had people in your family and you had friends that were farmers. So you understood farming analogies. So here he's starting off with talking about how if your mind regularly has thoughts of central desire, ill will, and cruelty, then that's where your mind's going to lean towards those things. If you allow your mind to dwell in central desire, ill will, and cruelty, then that's what's going to be cultivated in the mind, that you've given up the right intention or you've abandoned the interest to develop the thought of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. That's what you would ultimately like to cultivate to get to enlightenment. But if you allow the mind to dwell in central desire, ill will, and cruelty, then you're not really working on this path. And there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of difficulties that one is going to experience as long as those thoughts are in the mind. And now he gives this analogy of this farmer who's taking care of the cattle. And he's saying in the last month of the rainy season in the autumn, when crops are thickened, a cattle worker would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, they didn't have these really well-defined land plots like we do now. Nowadays, we have very clear delineation of who owns which land. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, that wasn't really well set out in the way that it is today. And there were many people who were planting certain crops. 
And when you would have the rainy season, over the course of the rainy season, the fields would become very soft and the earth would be very easily modified and destroyed if somebody walked on this earth and it would destroy the crop, which would ultimately hurt the farmer in their income. And it would ultimately hurt the villagers because there would be less food for everybody to eat. So if you're a cattle worker working in the rainy season, you have to be very aware of where your cows are walking because if they walk into somebody's field and they destroy the crop, then you could be beaten, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if they stray into these crops because it's going to affect the income of the farmer and it's going to affect the ability of the villagers to eat. And a lot of people are going to be coming to look for you because you've damaged this crop. So the Buddha is saying, if your mind has central desire, ill will, and cruelty, you have to constantly be on guard of what's going on in the world because you can be beaten, imprisoned, fined, or blamed because you're doing all these harmful things because your mind is polluted with central desire, ill will, and cruelty. So you're out there doing all these different things that are very harmful in the world. And the Buddha is saying that he saw this dishonor, this danger and defilement in these unwholesome states of central desire, ill will, and cruelty. So he was interested in cultivating the wholesome states of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. And this is going to cleanse his mind. So then he became diligent, dedicated, and determined to cultivate these three qualities of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. And as he cultivated these in the mind, this is what leads to enlightenment. Because as you cultivate right intention and you train your mind in this way, it's going to lean towards enlightenment because you're cultivating renunciation, the willingness to let go. You're cultivating the goodwill or non-ill will. You're cultivating the harmlessness. This is going to help you to get to enlightenment. And then he's saying, okay, as you develop these qualities of mind, ultimately what he gets to is he says, this is just like a cattle worker in the last month of the hot season that this cattle worker, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, the cattle worker can just sit down by the root of a tree or out in the open, and all he needs to do is be aware that his cows are over there. He doesn't have to be constantly on guard. He can rest, he can be at ease, he can be peaceful, because at the end of the hot season, the ground is very hard, and the crops have already been brought in, so there's no crops to destroy. So he can take his cows out to graze and he can just kind of lackadaisical, be nice and at ease. He can be comfortable. He can be very much fulfilled by just relaxing by the tree and not really worrying about his cows. And the same thing is true. The Buddha is saying when you cultivate renunciation, when you cultivate non-ill will and you cultivate harmlessness, you can be at ease because your mind has fully cultivated these three qualities. And now that's what's going to help you get to enlightenment. You don't need to be constantly on guard when you fully cultivate these three qualities in the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 37. Okay, this one is titled, One Who Dismantles, Not Builds Up, Abandons, and Not Clings to the Five Aggregates. Monks, those aesthetics and Brahmins, who recollect 
recall or remember. Their countless past lives all recollect the five aggregates subject to clinging or a certain one among them. What five? When recollecting thus, monks, I had such form in the past, it is just form that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such a feeling in the past, it is just feeling that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such a perception in the past, it is just perception that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such volitional formations, choices, decisions in the past, it is just volitional formations that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such consciousness in the past, it is just consciousness that one recollects. And why, monks, do you call it form? It is deformed, monks, therefore it is called form. Deformed by what? Deformed by cold, deformed by heat, deformed by hunger, deformed by thirst, deformed by contact with flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and serpents. It is deformed, monks, therefore it is called form. And why, monks, do you call it feeling? It feels, monks, therefore it is called feeling. And what does it feel? It feels pleasure, it feels pain, it feels neither pain nor pleasure. It feels, monks, therefore it is called feeling. And why, monks, do you call it perception? It perceives, monks, therefore it is called perception. And what does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white. It perceives, monks, therefore it is called perception. And why, monks, do you call them volitional formations? They construct the conditioned, monks, therefore they are called volitional formations, choices, decisions. And what is the conditioned that they construct? They construct conditioned form as form. They construct conditioned feeling as feeling. They construct conditioned perception as perception. They construct conditioned volitional formations as volitional formations. They construct conditioned consciousness as consciousness. They construct the conditioned monks, therefore they are called volitional formations, choices, decisions. And why, monks, do you call it consciousness? It recognizes, monks, therefore it is called consciousness. And what does it recognize? It recognizes sour, it recognizes bitter, it recognizes pungent, it recognizes sweet, it recognizes sharp, it recognizes mild, it recognizes salty, it recognizes bland, it recognizes monks, therefore it is called consciousness. Okay, I'm going to pause here and help you understand what's being discussed so far, and then I'm going to go on from there. So the Buddha is now talking about the five aggregates. The five aggregates also referred to as the five collections or the five elements. These are the five things that make a living being a living being. And you need to understand this in order to be able to practice something like the first precept. 
the first precept the Buddha is teaching you to live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. This helps you to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will from the mind in those lesser versions like frustration, bitterness, hostility. Because if you have any kind of anger, hatred, ill will towards any living beings, then that's going to be the harmful, those cruel thoughts. That's going to be the ill will coming out. And as you put that out, it's going to come back to you. So you need to understand what the five aggregates are and that they are describing what a living being is. And here, the Buddha is now describing the individual aggregates. And you can actually think about this as I teach it to you. You can actually learn it and you can reflect on it to independently verify that it's true. Because his description of the five aggregates and what a living being is, it will hold up all throughout time. It's held up for these 2,500 years that it describes a living being during his lifetime. It describes a living being now and long into the future it will describe living beings. And you'll need to understand this so that you can apply the various teachings that he teaches, particularly the first precept to a living being. And then also you need to ultimately learn not to cling to these yourself, which I'm going to describe to you here in a moment. But first, let's be sure you understand what the five aggregates are and that you can independently reflect on this because you know you're a living being. So do you have these five aggregates? The first one is called form. This is the physical form. So the physical body, this is called form. Okay. Then there's feelings. So every living being is going to have physical form and they're going to have feelings. The feelings are the conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. This is called feelings. So any living being is going to have all three of these feelings. Then there's perceptions. Here, what a perception is, is it's your views and opinions of the world. Even though the Buddha is describing it here through colors, is you have certain views, certain opinions of the world and how you perceive the world. That's what a perception is. Then there's what's called volitional formations. Volitional formations are choices and decisions that an individual makes. A living being can make independent volitional formations or choices and decisions. And then a living being is going to have a consciousness. This is the mind itself that the mind itself is the consciousness. So a living being is going to have physical form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and a consciousness. So you can see that you have all five of these. And then you can also look at things like a dog, a cat, a bird, a snake, an ant, a worm, a tiger, a bear, all of these living beings that you know of to be living beings have all five aggregates. So you can independently verify that this is the truth in that way. But then not stopping there, making sure that you fully investigate this, you can also independently verify this based on things that you know aren't living beings, like a computer or a desk or a coffee cup or a microphone or a water bottle. Do they have physical form? Yes, they have physical form. Do they have feelings? No, they don't. Do they have perceptions? Do they have views and opinions about the world? No, they don't. Do they have volitional formations, choices and decisions? No, they can't make decisions. They can't choose to pick themselves up and relocate themselves. 
And do they have a consciousness or a mind? The answer is no. So you can see that these inanimate objects, like a computer, like a desk, like a mug, they don't have these five aggregates and they're not living beings. And this is where you can take something like a tree or a bacteria or a virus and you can see that they don't have all five aggregates. So even though in modern language someone might say you're killing a tree or you're killing a bacteria or you're killing a virus, you're not actually killing these things. You are harvesting a tree or you're harvesting a broccoli or you're harvesting an apple or you're eliminating a bacteria. You're eliminating a virus. You're not killing these things. So even though someone might say that, that is the unknowing of true reality that the mind has in the unenlightened state. It speaks in ways that doesn't fully represent the truth. So you would like to be able to train your mind more and more to be able to see clearly what is the truth and then to be able to articulate that in certain situations where you need to. So I wouldn't say that I've killed a tree or I've killed a bacteria or I killed a virus. Instead, you're harvesting a plant or you're eliminating a bacteria or a virus. So there you can see what a living being is, is through the five aggregates. It's gonna have form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. So that's the first part of this. Now the Buddha continues. He says, therein monks, the instructed noble disciple reflects thus, I am now being consumed by form. In the past too, I was consumed by present form. If I were to seek excitement in future form, then in the future too, I shall be consumed by form in the very same way that I am now being consumed by present form. Having reflected thus, he becomes indifferent towards past form. He does not seek excitement in future form, and he is practicing for distancing towards present form for its fading away in elimination. Similar discourses were also spoken in the case of feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. The discourses then continue as following. So let me explain to you what he's saying here. Is you know you have these five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. What the mind does in the unenlightened state is it clings to these things. You're wanting the physical form to be permanent. So maybe when you have a youthful appearance, if you see a wrinkle or you see a gray hair or you see a pimple or you see a little bit of fat here or there, your mind might become discontent when you see these things because the mind is craving this permanence or you're wanting certain things that you had in the past. Maybe now you're older and you're longing and yearning for your youthful appearance or maybe you're younger, maybe you're 10 years old at one time and you were longing and yearning to be 20 or 30 or 40 and being older. This is the future form, excitement and future form. Also, excitement and future form is rebirth and being reborn. So the Buddha is saying like right now you are consumed with these five aggregates. These five aggregates are here and there's an existence. And if you continue to stay consumed by these things, then there's going to be continuous rebirth over and over and over again because the mind's clinging to these things. So having reflected thus that you realize that you're consumed by this form and that it's causing these discontent feelings as the mind is clinging to these five aggregates, then he's saying the mind can become indifferent 
towards these five aggregates, that you don't seek excitement in these five aggregates, and that you practice for distancing yourself and for elimination of these five aggregates. And that's getting to enlightenment. By training the mind to eliminate the clinging to these five aggregates, then you're practicing for the distancing of these five aggregates and fading away and eliminating the clinging to these five aggregates because getting to enlightenment means that the mind will be peaceful and joyful, but there also isn't going to be a taking up of the five aggregates again in the future. There's not going to be a rebirth where the being is coming back over and over and over again. But if you remain clinging to the five aggregates, holding on to these five aggregates, then the mind can't get to enlightenment and there's going to be rebirth. So that means if there's birth, there's going to be aging, sickness, and death. There's going to be grief, pain, displeasure, and despair over and over and over and over again. So that's that part. So now, realizing that the goal is to eliminate the clinging to these five aggregates, the Buddha is going to go into helping you understand that these five aggregates are impermanent and that they're causing discontentedness as long as the mind's clinging to them. What do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. Similar discourses were spoken in the case of feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. The discourses then continue as follows. So here, what he's helping you to understand is that none of these five aggregates are the self. That universal truth of non-self is to liberate the mind from the pollution of personal existence view, where you're clinging to this physical form, you're clinging to your feelings, clinging to the perceptions and your views and opinions of the world, that you're clinging to your decisions, that you're clinging to the consciousness or the mind, the self-identity in the mind. If you're clinging to any of these five aggregates, then the mind's going to ultimately be experiencing discontentedness and it's not going to be able to get liberated to get to enlightenment and it will continue to experience rebirth. So the Buddha is helping you to see that all these five aggregates are impermanent and if things are impermanent, and the mind continues to crave permanence, then it's going to lead to discontentedness. And are any of these five aggregates you? Are they yourself? And the Buddha students are replying, no, none of these five aggregates are me. So you aren't this body. You aren't these feelings. You aren't these perceptions or these choices or decisions or the mind itself. So when you experience certain feelings in the mind, the mind might be angry But you aren't angry because there's no you there. So you can't be angry. The mind can be angry, but you can't be angry because there's no you there. Or if the body is hungry, the body is hungry. I am not hungry, but the body is hungry. So you need to transform the way the mind thinks. Instead of thinking I am hungry and now I become grumpy because I am hungry. Instead, just understand that the body is hungry And the mind needs to start making a choice to go get some food. And the body can't be permanently comfortable 
because that would be permanent. So it's going to experience a little bit of hunger pain here and there throughout your life. And you just need to start making decisions to move towards food rather than allowing the mind to be grumpy or irritable. So rather than thinking, I have a headache, think that the head hurts, right? If I have a headache and now I am going to be grumpy or irritable or angry because I have a headache, don't think of it that way. Change your perspective. Change the way you think about it. Think about it as the head hurts. And now you need to address that. Do you need more sleep? Do you need more water? Do you need some medicine? What do you need to do to take care of this headache so that it can be eliminated? So none of these five aggregates are you. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, none of this stuff is you. Okay, so now let's go on to the next piece. Therefore, monks, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So that's what he's sharing, what we just talked about. There's none of these five aggregates, even though this particular paragraph is using form, he described the same thing with all the five aggregates. So none of these five aggregates are you, but the unenlightened mind is going to think that it is. And that's where that personal existence view, that pollution is holding on. This is called monks, a noble disciple who dismantles and does not build up, who abandons and does not cling, who scatters and does not amass, who extinguishes and does not inflame. And what is it that he dismantles and does not build up? He dismantles form and does not build it up. He dismantles feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not build it up. And what is it that he abandons and does not cling to? He abandons form and does not cling to it. He abandons feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not cling to it. And what is it that he scatters and does not amass? He scatters form and does not amass it. He scatters feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not amass it. And what is it that he extinguishes and does not inflame? He extinguishes form and does not inflame it. He extinguishes feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not inflame it. So here, this is the part we were just talking about where you don't cling to any of these five aggregates. Clinging to any of these five aggregates means there's going to be discontentedness and there's going to be rebirth. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple experiencing fading away of strong feelings towards form, fading away of strong feelings towards feeling, fading away of strong feelings towards perception, fading away of strong feelings towards volitional formations, choices or decisions, fading away of strong feelings towards consciousness. Experiencing fading away of strong feelings, he becomes free of strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He understands, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more for this state of being. So. Here, the Buddha is saying that having eliminated clinging to the five aggregates, 
that now the mind can get to liberation because there's going to be this fading away of this clinging. You can't just snap your fingers and eliminate the clinging to these five aggregates, but gradually building up your breathing mindfulness meditation, gradually building up your practice of generosity as you practice this. And then when you see the clinging arising with mindfulness during your daily life, you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. This is the practice that's going to help you to eliminate the clinging. And then when your mind is liberated, you'll know that it's liberated because it'll be one year, two years, three years that you haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever. And you'll have the knowledge that the mind is liberated. And having liberated the mind, then you'll also know that there isn't going to be any more rebirth because the teachings of the Buddha are guiding you exactly to this enlightened mental state. And as you get closer and closer to that peace and joy of the enlightened mental state, you'll have more and more confidence that these teachings are leading you exactly where the Buddha said that they would be leading you to. And you will have confirmed the cycle of rebirth as you're making your way to enlightenment and you will see the truth that it is 100% the truth. So if these teachings are guiding you to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy and you get to the point where it's been one year, two years, three years, you haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever and you've confirmed the cycle of rebirth and you know that by eliminating craving, you've eliminated discontentedness, you'll also know that by having eliminated craving, you will have eliminated the condition that causes rebirth into a new existence. So now you can live out the rest of your life with the peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy, and with the confidence that you're not going to be reborn coming back into the world into a new existence to have to repeat it over and over and over again. So that's what the Buddha is sharing here. This is called, monks, a noble disciple who neither builds up nor dismantles, but who resides having dismantled, who neither abandons nor clings, but who resides having abandoned, who neither scatters nor amasses, but who resides having scattered, who neither extinguishes nor inflames, but who resides having extinguished it. And what is it, monks, that he neither builds up nor dismantles, but resides having dismantled. He neither builds up nor dismantles form, but resides having dismantled it. He neither builds up nor dismantles feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having dismantled it. And what is it that he neither abandons nor clings to, but resides having abandoned? He neither abandons nor clings to form, but resides having abandoned it. He neither abandons nor clings to feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having abandoned it. And what is it that he neither scatters nor amasses, but resides having scattered? He neither scatters nor amasses form, but resides having scattered it. He neither scatters nor amasses feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having scattered it. And what is it that he neither extinguishes nor inflames, but resides having extinguished? He neither extinguishes nor inflames form, but resides having extinguished it. He neither extinguishes nor inflames feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having extinguished it. When monks, a monk is thus liberated in mind, the heavenly beings together with Indra, Brahma, and Pajapita, pay homage or respect to him from far away. 
Homage to you, O thoroughbred man. Homage to you, O highest among men. We ourselves do not directly know, dependent upon what you meditate. Okay, so all that stuff up here that I was reading, this is all just a continuation of helping you to understand to not cling to the five aggregates. And then having done so, the mind gets to this liberation, this enlightened mental state. And what the Buddha is saying is these heavenly beings and these other beings who people would have known who these other beings are during the lifetime of the Buddha, Indra, Brahma, and if I'm pronouncing this one right, Paja, Pati, are individual beings that people would have known of. Brahma is the way that they referred to God during the lifetime of the Buddha. So the Buddha is saying that, okay, all these beings would acknowledge and respect you for having gotten to enlightenment. And then he's saying, okay, they're respecting you with this homage of considering you this thoroughbred of a man or a highest of men. And of course, he's talking to men here, so he's using the pronoun of man, but a woman can get to enlightenment as well, or even someone who doesn't identify with any particular gender. You can train your mind to get to enlightenment, but he's just using this pronoun because essentially by the time you get to enlightenment and you've purified the mind, you're essentially functioning as a perfect individual. You're no longer harming anybody whatsoever. You're no longer having any of that ill will or conceit and arrogance and pride and all these other defilements that are in the mind. You've now become this perfect individual that you're now functioning in the world without causing harm to others. And even though here the Buddha is saying that these beings are thinking of you as this thoroughbred of a man or this highest among men, it's important that you don't consider yourself that way. So if you know that you're enlightened, you shouldn't consider yourself above others. Because if you consider yourself above others, you're actually not enlightened. An enlightened being doesn't think of themselves that way. They don't think of themselves above others or below others. They just think of themselves as equal to everybody. So even though others might look at you as being so high or such a thoroughbred of a person or something like that, it's important that you remain humble because as soon as you allow any arrogance to come into the mind, the mind's not actually enlightened. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Just let me know. I know it's a very long one and very detailed. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to chapter 38. I'll take some water here. <laughs> and if you guys in Zoom would like to read, feel free. All right, Donnie, thank you. Go ahead. See as it really is. This world, become ablaze by touch of sense affiliated, utters its own grief. Whatever conceit one has, therein is instability, existent in another bound to exist, yet in existence it rejoices. Excitement therein is fear, and what it fears is harm. For abandoning existence, this Brahma's life is lived. Whatsoever aesthetics or Brahmins have said that by existence is released from existence, all of them are unreleased from existence, I declare. But whatever so aesthetics or Brahmins have said that by the stopping of existence, there's refuge from existence, all such are not free from existence, I declare. It is due to the foundation that this harm is produced. By the ending of all grasping, there is no production of harm. 
We hold these many worlds by ignorance and later come into existence and thus with what has been cited, yet from existence not released, yet all existences wherever and whatever state they be, all are impermanent and harm and doom to change. In one who sees as it really is by perfect wisdom, the craving to exist is left. He joys not in his slaying, but craving complete cravings, complete ending, complete stopping, is nirvana or enlightenment. Thus becoming cool, that monk, no more reborn, no more existences, beaten is Mara, spawn the fight, escape all future existences. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So here, the Buddha is talking about a bunch of different things and a little bit of not quite poetic form, but kind of in a verse form. But what he's really getting to is the elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance. These three poisons or three unwholesome roots or three fires. I'm going to be discussing this in tomorrow's group learning program. On Sunday, I'm going to be sharing the three poisons, three unwholesome roots, or three fires to help you understand what they are and how to actually eliminate them. That's what he's essentially getting to here, is the elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance is what leads the mind to enlightenment. Are there any questions that you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions. So I'll move on to the next one, which is chapter 39. Okay, here this one is titled, One Who Develops Mindfulness of Death Diligently for the Destruction of the Taints. Monks, mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless or enlightenment, having the deathless as its conclusion. But do you monks develop mindfulness of death? When this was said, one monk said to the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, I develop mindfulness of death. Monks, the monk who develops mindfulness of death, thus, may I live just a night and a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just half a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat a single alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat half an alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who dwell carelessly. They develop mindfulness of death sluggishly for the destruction of the taints. But the monk who develops mindfulness of death May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow a single mouthful of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to breathe out after breathing in or to breathe in after breathing out so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who reside determined. 
they develop mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the taints. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will reside determined. We will develop mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the taints. Thus should you train yourselves. So let me explain to you what mindfulness of death is first, and then I'll explain to you a little bit more about this particular chapter. What mindfulness of death is, or some people refer to it as reflection on death or contemplation of death, this is where you essentially train the mind to get comfortable with your own death. That oftentimes you might fear death in the unenlightened state. Maybe if the mind's holding on to certain central desires or relationships or things in this life, you might not be wanting to leave and you might not be wanting to leave this world. And the mind might have a certain fear. If you've done certain unwholesome things in this life, you might have a fear of what's next. So by the time an individual gets to the enlightened mental state, you have no fear of death whatsoever. And the, one of the ways that you do that is you train the mind through contemplating death or reflection on death or mindfulness of death. You're not aspiring to die. You're not wanting to die. But instead, you sit with your eyes closed and you confront your own death. You kind of envision and imagine that you've actually died and that you're like a fly on the wall. Maybe if you have relatives, maybe there's like a police officer or a doctor or a nurse that calls your family and tells them that you've died. And you're kind of watching this like a fly on the wall. And maybe your family grieves and maybe they plan a funeral. Maybe you're cremated or whatever happens. You just kind of live that out for about 10, 15, 20 minutes within your own mind, with your eyes closed. It's not meditation. You're just convincing the mind that you've died and confronting your death. You might become sorrowful, you might grieve, you might get angry or sad or frustrated. You might realize there are certain things that are left undone that you didn't get to do, or there are certain conversations that you need to have that you haven't had with certain people. And these are all very helpful for you, that even if you're getting sorrowful or grieved during this process, this is the mind letting go of its craving, desire, attachment to this existence and because you were craving and holding on to this life, now when the mind's confronted with this impermanence and is starting to let go of its craving, it's going to move to these painful feelings. And you might experience the sorrow or the grief or the displeasure. And that means the work that you're doing to contemplate death or reflect on death or develop mindfulness of death is actually working. And you might need to do this on multiple sessions. So you do it once and then wait a few weeks, kind of let the mind become stable through your breathing mindfulness meditation and other things that you do. And then after two, three, four weeks, you might need to do it again and again and again. You might need to do it three, four, five times until you eventually get to the point where you're completely comfortable with death. You've completely accepted it. There's no fear of it whatsoever. You see that things are just fine without your being in existence. So this is what it means to develop mindfulness of death, being aware that you're going to die, that this life is impermanent. There's no way for you to get out of here alive. You're going to experience death. Because you were born, you have to die. Every single one of us have to experience that. So you would like to develop that at some point in your practice. And you can do this for yourself, which will help you to be able to eliminate any fear of death and get comfortable with death. And if you have attachment to loved ones, like your parents, a life partner, children, you can ultimately do this with them as well in your own mind, not doing it with them, but do it where you sit and reflect on their death. This will help you to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment, and it'll promote 
a more healthy relationship with people that are close to you because you help you to eliminate your attachment to them. And you'll find that you will really appreciate the time that you spend with them because when you confront their death within your own mind, now any extra time that you get with them is like a bonus. Whereas if you're holding on to them and holding on to them and holding on to them, you're going to have agitation and annoyance and frustration in your relationship. But if you can eliminate your attachment to the people that are close to you through this activity over multiple sessions, now you can get to a point where you thoroughly enjoy and you're fully fulfilled in your relationships and you're no longer trying to force people or pressure people into doing things your way. So this is what mindfulness of death is, being aware that you're going to die. And what the Buddha is saying is that if you're interested in getting to this enlightened mental state, you need to cultivate this awareness of death. And if you do that sluggishly, then you aren't really paying attention to your practice. And he's giving this time frame about eating food because people understand how long it takes to eat food, for example. And he's giving the example like, okay, if you're thinking about developing your practice and eliminating the fetters in this way that he's describing in terms of time, this is sluggishly. But if you develop this mindfulness of death in the way that he's describing here, where you take the length of time to chew and swallow one single mouthful or breathe in and breathe out, then you're being diligent with the destruction of the taints or the fetters. And this is what you would like to do is to develop this determination where you're not just completely complacent and lethargic and dull about developing your life practice, but you stay dedicated and determined and diligent. You're going to need to rest at different times, but you need to be able to build up your practice, absorb a certain amount of teachings, put those into practice. And then as you're practicing those, then maybe learn some more and put those teachings into practice. You're going to need to kind of ebb and flow with your practice and gradually build it up over time. But if you do that sluggishly, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment in this life necessarily. You would like to become determined, dedicated, and diligent. And that's what's going to help you to be able to fully transform the mind, eliminate the fetters, and get to enlightenment. Questions on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'm going to move on to this last one. Donnie, would you like to take the last one? Sure. The supreme development of the sense spaces. Now, Ananda, how is there a supreme development of the sense spaces in the noble one's disciple? Here, Ananda, when a monk sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both disagreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus. There has a reason in me what is agreeable, there has a reason what is disagreeable, there has a reason what is both agreeable and disagreeable. But that is conditioned, clear, independently arisen, this is peaceful, this is superb, that is equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that has that arose are eliminated in him, and equanimity is established. Just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes, might open them, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated just as quickly 
just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called in the noble one's disciple, the supreme development of the sense basis regarding forms recognizable by the eye. Similar discourses were spoken in the case of hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odor with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a physical object with the body, and recognizing a mental object with the sound, though with different analogy as the following sound. Just as a strong man might easily snap his fingers, odor, just as rain dropped on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off, flavor, just as a strong man might easily spit out a bottle of spit collected on the tip of his tongue. Physical object, just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm. Mental object, just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, it will quickly vaporize and vanish. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So without going through this in a super lot of detail, I can just explain it to you what the Buddha is talking about here. When the mind has craving, desire, attachment, there's going to be certain things that the mind sees as agreeable and certain things that you see as disagreeable, that there are certain things you want and you see that these are agreeable because the mind has craving, desire, attachment. It wants certain things. And then there are certain things that the mind doesn't want. It sees these as disagreeable because of its craving, desire, attachments. And these are things that are being seen through the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself. So if you see a mother walking down the street holding a child's hand, you might find that as agreeable. and Like, oh, that's so precious. Oh, I love that so much. It's so great. But then if you see a parent slap a child across the face, this might be disagreeable to you, right? We're not talking about what's wise or unwise. We're just talking about if there's craving in the mind, what is causing this agreeable and disagreeable thing that's going on in the mind. The same thing is happening with music in the ears, certain sounds that you hear, certain odors that you smell, certain flavors on the tongue. You see certain foods as agreeable, certain foods that are disagreeable based on the cravings, desires, attachments in the mind. But by the time you train the mind and you've developed your sense bases, as the Buddha is saying here, the supreme development of the sense bases, you will no longer see things as agreeable and disagreeable. It's just contact. There's just some food that is landing on the tongue. You don't see it as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just food and it's just to nourish the body. So you just chew it and you swallow it if that's what you need to do. Or there's some odor that comes into the nose. It's not agreeable or disagreeable. It's just an odor. It's just contact with some odor. And now you know that that's impermanent and you're not craving for that pleasantness to continue, and you're not repulsed by any kind of odor, that you just understand like, hmm, wow, that's quite a nice odor. Wow, that's quite nice. And then you just keep on going, right? Or you smell something that is like, whoa, that's a pretty strong odor. Like, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, you just keep going. But if it's an odor that you smell, like say it's some food, or say it's some cologne or perfume, you might be like, oh, that's the best smelling smell. Oh, I just want to smell that all day long, right? The mind might indulge in that. Or if you smell something that's disagreeable, it's like, oh, I'm repulsed by that. The mind is pushing it away and having all these harsh facial expressions because 
the mind has a certain craving and it sees that as disagreeable. But by the time you train with the breathing mindfulness meditation, the generosity, by the time you develop your mindfulness, you apply right effort to cut off and cut off and cut off. You cut off those bodily sensations that are occurring. You no longer allow the mind to form conditioned feelings. You won't see things as agreeable or disagreeable anymore. It's just contact. It's just something coming in through one of the sense bases. You're not clinging to it and wanting it to continue permanently, and you're not repulsed by it either because you understand these things are all impermanent. That's what he's getting to here with this. Any questions on this chapter? Francis, go ahead. Um, David, I have this question relating to this uh, thing that I have in my mind for quite a long time. Uh, it's about this uh, attachment to something that is not uh, pleasant. But I have this elbow, uh, tennis elbow pain for many, many years already. I seem to have this aversion towards that, thinking that I, how come I haven't found the right treatment or remedy? And it kind of bothers me occasionally. Uh, I have this attachment to this uh, this thing. And yeah, imagine it's contact. Yeah, I contact my body, I have this problem. So how would I approach this, you know, in the Dharma point of view that, you know, what shall I be thinking of or doing uh, in, in, in this area? Could you please enlighten me? Sure. What I would do if I had tennis elbow is first figure out, you know, what is it that's causing it? There's some repetitive motion, right? It may or may not be tennis. If you play tennis, okay. But if there's something else that you're doing, you need to address that. So you're not continuing to do that repetitive motion and continue to damage the structures in the elbow. Then it's a matter of starting to look for some kind of treatment, which you might have already done these things, right? Is stop the activity and then look for some kind of treatment. Understanding all the while as you're looking for some kind of treatment that it's impossible for this body to be permanently comfortable. It's going to experience aches and pains at some point. It's only a matter of time. So now as you're looking for a treatment, just gradually look for something that can address this and realize that there's some certain ailments in the body that we just can't treat, that it's just going to happen, that there's going to be times where you're going to experience comfort in the body and there's going to be times where this illness or this condition arises and you're going to feel some pain. And when the pain comes in the physical body and the mind's aware of it, just remind the mind that this is impermanent, that it is not permanent. And if you need to put heat or you need to put cold or however you're treating, or if you need to take medicine to address the pain, then do that. But if I was you, I would try to accept the pain as much as you can. But when it gets to a point where you need to take some medicine or you need to take something, then go ahead and do that. But if you can train your mind to understand that, okay, there's pain there, but I don't need to have mental anguish. Even though there's physical pain, the mind doesn't need to have mental anguish. That this way, the pain will actually be a lot less. When the mind is experiencing this pain in the physical body, if you right away crave and long for permanent comfort in the body, then the mind's gonna have this mental anguish. It's gonna get frustrated and agitated and irritated that the body is not permanently comfortable and that's going to heighten the pain. So if you can maintain the calmness and composure in the mind, it will actually mute the pain and you'll have less and less pain and then this will help you to overall reside more comfortable. 
Okay, I guess it's just um, see things as they really are. Um, that yeah, my body is already deteriorating. This injury has been around for years due to uh, injury during sports and all that. So um, yeah, I just see as the way it is. I do I do my best whatever I can. So that would be a good approach. And uh, how about if let's say I just thought about it that uh, this is not myself. This is not me. This is the body. Uh, this pain or discomfort is not me, not myself. Would it be also be uh, beneficial to do that? Absolutely. Anytime you're experiencing anything, whether it's physical pain or anything, it's always important to remind the mind that this isn't you. It's not who you are. It's just the body experiencing this. Okay, I got it. So um, I just see a thing with I and I do the reflection on the impermanence and the uh, non-self thing on that to help me go, go through. Okay, thank you so much. Yes, and something I'll add here, Francis, is as you're doing all the other work on the path where you're doing your breathing mindfulness meditation, your generosity, you're practicing mindfulness and you're cutting off and letting go anytime bodily sensations are arising, this is helping you overall to eliminate all your cravings, desires, attachments, and you'll find that it'll be easier during those times when there's pain in the physical body to be able to reside comfortable. So if you weren't doing all that other work and you're only doing what it is that we're describing here, it's not going to have the full effect. So I know you're doing those other things, but I would just like to point out that those are also leading towards less and less pain in the body as well. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere across our platform. So I would just thank all of you guys for joining for today's class and invite you to next week where we're going to be finishing up this volume nine, the six sense spaces by studying chapters 41 through 47. We'll be done with the book at that point. And then we'll move into volume 10. And remember, you can get these books by downloading them, by taking it and go printing it or by ordering a printed version on Amazon if you have access to Amazon. So thank you all for joining for today's class. And if you would like to come to tomorrow's class, which is studying chapter eight of volume one, we're gonna be studying transforming the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance. And remember, you've got two time slots for these classes now that I'm teaching them on the morning at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Thai time. So that gives you two options for attending. I teach in the morning at the temple and I live stream that and then I teach here at home in the evening so you have access to these. And where you can't attend the live class, they're recorded so you're able to access them on Facebook, YouTube, or on our podcast. So thank you all for joining for the classes and we'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.